Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode Around the Fire on Spirit Reflections. My name is Fred Govea. If you're here for the first time, Spirit Reflections is an ongoing series of bilingual conversations in Portuguese and English about people's personal and spiritual journeys, the tools that they found along the way, and how these tools shaped who they are and the work that they do today. We interview artists, philosophers, scientists, and religious people of all traditions to learn how they came into being and the insights that they discovered along the way. So please like and subscribe to our channel on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, and leave us a review there. And if you're interested in getting to know about our events and workshops, go to spiritreflections.org and subscribe to our newsletter. We're going to be sending you information about upcoming workshops and events. So my guest today is Shabasti, and we're going to talk about family constellation work. Before we do, I'm going to read you your bio and all the information about Shabasti's website and the links that you can find his books is available in the description of this video below. So Shabasti, also known as the author John Payne, is the author of four books published through Findhorn Press, and he has facilitated workshops on every inhabited continent, Europe, North America, South America, Africa, Asia, and Australia, in places as diverse as the USA, Canada, India, Brazil, Australia, and South Africa, including a host of other locations, over the period of helping thousands of people during the more than 450 weekend workshops. And he has also offered more than 5,000 private healing sessions. Working with Shavasti, you'll enter a journey with a very seasoned healer who offers a depth of vision coupled with deep compassion that you will be able to access the better parts of yourself that you may have forgotten that you possess. His training background includes, but is not limited to, family constellations from Bert Hellinger, bioenergetics, NLP, Barbara Brennan School of Healing, walking the shaman's path with Patricia White Buffalo, initiation in, in the Sangoma tradition of Africa, and Zen intensives in monasteries. Shavasti's own personal journey has included an early childhood in Asia, Europe, and Australasia, experiencing what it was like to feel very different as the psychic mixed heritage child, trying to find his place in the world with a backdrop of violence, emotional, sexual, and religious abuse. His journey into healing has been combined with the thirst for knowledge and direct experience. It is with this volume of direct experience that he offers you his hand and invites you to walk with him for a while on your very own sacred discovery of deeper layers of yourself, devoid of masks and pretenses, the real authentic you. Shavasti continues his personal development through receiving tuition, supervision, and healing on a very regular basis. And I recently had a chance to meet Shavasti in Bali in a week-long immersion on family constellation work, and it was transformative on so many levels and i'm just very pleased that he's been able to make time from his very busy schedule to talk with us here around the fire on spirit reflection so without further ado shavasti welcome hi hello federico very nice to be with you again and we're on separate continents this time as opposed to being together on the island of bali hmm. that's right just across the pond just across the pond, yes, it's <laughs> quite amusing that we call the one of the largest oceans on the planet a pond. <laughs> right, right. Very tiny. We like to start our, our episodes around the fire on spirit reflections with the guest's personal journey. And in the process, taking us to how you first found your spiritual tools that led you to mold your understanding of yourself and the world, and that eventually uh, brought you to family constellations work, which is our theme today. So why don't you start us off from the beginning? Well, that was uh, not a very straightforward um, journey. It's not as if I woke up one day and said, okay, I want to learn how to do therapy, or I want to, um, to join this course or that course or the other course. And just to give a little bit of context, um, I was very sensitive as a young child, and I talked to trees and animals and stones and and spirits. I had lots of what my parents would call imaginary friends. Right. But as I grew up um, and logic was imposed upon me and 
all of that stuff was dismissed as being complete nonsense and imaginary. Um, I, I then, you know, launched myself into education and then a career, and then I was in the corporate world. And I was in the corporate world um, throughout my 20s, did very well, was financially successful and bought my first property when I was 24, etc. Nice. And then in 1992, a year after moving to Holland, maybe it was a year and a half, I'm not 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 sure, and memory is a little bit sketchy with, with, with exact dates. But a little while after moving to Holland, I essentially had a nervous breakdown my world came crashing down. I suffered from extreme anxiety and, uh, and agoraphobia, agoraphobia, which means that I was afraid to leave the house. I was in a relationship, so my partner was, was really taking care of me. And um, I was really on the edge of being sent to a psychiatric unit because I was really mentally very, very unwell. And so as I was at home for months on end and, and slowly being able to engage with the world again and go outside and take the dogs for a walk, I began to wonder, what is it that brought me to this place? Why mm. did this seemingly appear out of nowhere to, 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 to suffer from, from mental illness? So I began to seek out therapists and healers, and that's really how my journey started. So it started with the self-healing of really exploring what was it that caused this? What, because there wasn't a significant event that had triggered it. Just the, just the pressure of having a corporate job and earning money and paying mortgages and things like that. Um, I didn't consider that to be sufficient to trigger trigger this cascade down into mental illness i'm curious in your early childhood when you had this sort of psychic door more more open to the spirit world and angels and, mm -hmm. and you know disincarnated spirits however we want to call them had you at the time received any kind of guidance or message or any type of a uh, sort of warning or what, what, do you remember any of those encounters that sort of stayed with you during those early years that would eventually come back at a, at a moment like the one you were just telling us of crisis? I, I do recall one moment when I was very young and I might have been somewhere between 9 and 11 years old in, where in my conversations with what I call the voice, that the voice told me things might be difficult, but they will all turn out okay. And I remembered that, and I remembered that, and I, and I continue to remember that until today. So, um, but there were plenty of things that happened in my childhood, which I'd never really dealt with. And so the admonition from the family was to toughen up and to toughen up and to toughen right. up and to toughen up. And so there were a lot of feelings and emotions and indeed trauma, which simply had not been processed. And so it all came up to the surface all at once. Um, although at the time, back in 1992, I cannot think of a specific event that actually caused it to come up to the surface, apart from the fact that I was feeling very content. I, I just mm. bought a beautiful house. I was in a new relationship. I was very much in love. And I lived in a, in a location that I adored, right opposite a forest, but very close to, to a town. Um, so seemingly on the outside, um, I, had, I had success and I, I was living the dream. And then it all came crashing down. Sounds like it was the first time you allowed yourself to slow down and relax and ease into your life. And that's when it all came yeah, up. Yeah, and it all came up. So um, so that started my own journey. And, and I went to some very good therapists. I also went to some very bad therapists. And um, so I started this whole process of looking at my childhood with open eyes and with uh, quite some horror with some of the events that had actually taken place. So really what you're seeing today um, in terms of who I am as a person is the culmination of 
30 years of work, work on myself. And even though I work full time with other with other individuals at the moment, and I, and, and I do, and I have a very busy private practice, plus I give lots of workshops. I'm off to Israel next week, and I've just been in Bali. Um, and after that, I'm going to Bulgaria. Um, my work continues. So it's not as if I've arrived at this place of right. being healed. I'm still... Um, I'm still digging. I'm still digging. I'm still digging. I'm still looking at um, where can I be more whole? Where can I be more complete? How can I live even more deeply and firmly and with more conviction and with more ease from an undefended heart? That is my, that is my goal. Kindness is my practice. And my goal is to really live from an undefended heart. And so that requires ongoing work and ongoing reflection. I think that there's this mm, illusion that many people buy into, that we become healed and somehow we reach this goal and our work is done. And our work is done. And I, I, I believe that our work is never done. Because I can still turn on the TV and be triggered by something. So I'm right. not, I'm not um, aiming for the goal of never being triggered by injustice, for example. And so that there's another thing as well, where people think that um, if you're centered in your heart, that you just love everything and everyone and you allow injustice just to just to continue. And I will always speak up against injustice. So I'm not really talking about living in this blissed out state where I don't care about anything, because I care deeply about many, many topics. But living from an undefended heart is really looking at opportunities to connect with authenticity with other human beings. Because connection is what we crave. Connection is what we crave. And so my journey was um, not simple. Um, it was quite rough indeed. And, and I've had um, several very traumatic events in, in my life that have been crossroads that have then changed the direction of my life. Um, and because of my relationship with the divine, it's not that I think that there's an entity called God out there that is doing this to me, but I understand that there is greater purpose. Mm. So, for example, one of the things that happened in my life, this was a lot long after I'd, I had been practicing family constellation work, I had a deep question with regards to my work. And I could sense that there was something missing in my work. And I could, and, and it was very tangible that there was something missing, but I couldn't quite put my, put my, 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 my tongue on it. It was just, um, it was a mystery to me, but it was, it was almost as if it was haunting me, that there was something missing in my work. And then I experienced a most horrendous, most horrendous armed robbery that brought wow. me within a millimeter of my life. In fact, the gunman actually said he was going to going to kill me, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so the voice that I heard when I was a child that told me that everything would be okay, came back in that moment and asked me a very deep question. Do you wish to live? And I didn't say yes immediately. I paused for a moment, I had to really sit with okay, this is a decision here. And so I really looked at my life and there, there was an upwelling within me and a real upwelling within me of this longing to know every aspect of what love is. And then I said to the voice, yes, I wish to live. And then the gunman laughed and said, I'm in no, murder for, I know, no mood for murder tonight. And he walked away. What? And he walked away. And so I really felt held by the universe, even saved in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so wow. what ensued was a period of deep personal healing from that trauma. I went to China for a year to learn Tai Chi and, and Qigong, which really calmed my system. And so it took me several years to really learn what it was that was missing from my work and what had been gained through this, this, this second period of self-healing. And what had been missing was love. 
I'll be very honest about that. I was very much working from the mental field. Um, so family cons constellations had a logical structure. And so I was working with the logical structure. I was working from the, it doesn't mean to say that I was unkind. Sure, sure. doesn't mean to say that I was unkind. Um, although in the old days, I could be a wee bit brutal with people. Um, so through that healing process, I really discovered what was missing. And that was really the deep presence of love in my work. And I think also when we come from a place of deep wounds and trauma and we are in an effort to heal, it's not necessarily a place of love that we are in. Mm -hmm. We are in a place of deep hurt, deep right. pain, deep Indeed. misunderstanding, deep confusion. And so it's hard to find the love in that state, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm curious, Shavasi, since mo many of the guests that we interview sometimes have to go through a deconstruction of whatever it was that their religious upbringing imposed upon them. Absolutely. Conditionings and uh, from culture. And I wonder if you had any of that that you needed to deconstruct. Um, Absolutely. You mentioned that your family traveled, you've, you, know, you went to Asia, to Europe. So was there a sort of religious compass that your family practice that you had to be a part of somehow or well i was nominally raised catholic um and so i had to deconstruct all of you know the belief in hellfire the belief in sin um the belief that there was this old man with a beard in heaven looking down upon us especially very concerned about what we're doing with our genitals <laughs> um, and so I had to really just deconstruct all that. That deconstruction really took place in the first part of my healing. So after I'd had my my, my breakdown in, in Holland back in 1992, through that healing process, I just started to discover, discover other ways of looking at reality and the universe. Um, so one of the very first books that landed on my lap was You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. Louise Hay. Nice. It was a very simple start um i don't in this moment of time i don't happen to agree with everything that she says sure. but she was perfect perfect for 1993 perfect in 1993 and i give thanks to her as i give thanks to all of my previous teachers but i went from seth from 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 louise hay to seth seth speaks yeah seth speaks i went from louise hay to seth speaks and that was a real yeah. Uh, mind-blowing that was, that was really mind-blowing um and then after seth speaks i bought a book called hands of light by barbara ann brennan barbara brennan yes and i just devoured that book and i'm like oh my god you can heal with your hands oh my goodness there are spirit guides that are help oh my goodness that there is this other relationship to the divine that you can have that doesn't involve a priest telling you how unworthy a sinner you are Right. You know, you know if, when I first came back to the UK, uh, which was eight years ago, um, I celebrated Christmas Eve with two Catholic friends, nominally Catholic. Um, and um, I suggested to them, I said, would, would anybody like to go to Midnight Mass? First of all, they looked at me as if I was crazy with, um, because they're not religious. And I said, oh, it would be a nice thing to do. We're in London. We've all just arrived in London. Let's go to the cathedral and, and go to Midnight Mass. Well, we arrived at Midnight Mass, and instead of there being a sermon about the, um, the glorious descent of the Christ energy into the earth plane and the embodiment of this divine being, it was an hour-long sermon about sin and unworthiness. And my, on Christmas Eve? On Christmas Eve. Okay. So I looked at my friends and I said, I've had enough of this. I don't need to. I said, I've been told that I'm bad so many times throughout my entire life. I'm tired of this message. I'm really, I'm very, very tired of this message. And so during the first part of healing, um, in, in the 1990s, I had to undo um, a lot of that messaging, that there's something wrong with you. And when I was a teenager, and um, I had a, a period in my teenage years where I didn't live with my family, I lived with another family, 
um, because of family circumstances and also to protect the privacy of my parents and other people I'm not going to go into sure, too much sure. detail uh, and that that family were Jehovah's Witnesses oh. so I, I got absorbed into that as well and there was the constant message of you're bad you're a sinner you're imperfect and so their lifestyle and their life choices were imposed upon me and as a young gay man that went very very deep so i was constantly yeah. receiving the message there's something wrong with you you're bad and god does not love you and so through the 90s i had to heal that and so that's been an ongoing process been an ongoing process um so family constellation work came about in 1998 i had a before you go into that shavasti i'm just making a connection here when you mentioned living from an undefended heart which is mm -hmm. one of your central essential mantras today and just being in your place and time uh, amongst Jehovah's Witness and this notion of having to be a sinner and being bad, you constantly have to be living from a defended heart. You have to defend Indeed. yourself the Indeed. whole time. Yeah. So I built up many, many layers and I really had to learn how to deconstruct. And so my, my major defense is to be tough and to be unemotional and to be right. logical. Um, and I'd learned through imitating other members of my family that if you're dominant, you get what you want. If you're dominant and controlling and demanding, you get what you want. Mm -hmm. And I can do that when it's appropriate and when it's needed. So um, I was recently having to negotiate some care for my elderly father and I wasn't being listened to. So I could turn on that tap. Right. And so it's about turning on the tap when it's useful to us. Right. It's not about living from that space constantly. Because yes. living from that space constantly is just exhausting and it's not useful. And it doesn't, doesn't win you many, many friends. But sometimes... Sure we have to be demanding we have to raise our voice a little bit in order to be heard um, but i know individuals who live from that space 24 7 and it's really exhausting to be around and so um do i succeed at living from an undefended heart 24 7 no i don't is it my intention every day yes it is do i succeed at it most days yes i do do i succeed at, at it seven days a week no i don't yeah. Beautiful. So you were taking us back to 1998 when it seems like family constellations first came into your world. Tell us about that. That's right. Um, well, a friend of mine was training with Bert Hellinger. And so this was in, in the Netherlands. And um, she'd started to give her primary workshops and she, um, I mean, there was no graduation in those days and we didn't have formal training courses. Uh, there were trainings that were open. You could attend as many as you wanted to. And, um, you know, in order to have your name appear on Bert Hellinger's website as a facilitator, he had to personally approve of you, but there were no certificates and there were no formal training programs. So she was ready to start work and she invited me to, to come along. And I initially said no. And I said no several times because um, I had attended a psychodrama workshop, which I absolutely loathed. In fact, I left it because it was just screaming and shouting. And because of my background, with violence and trauma, screaming and shouting was the last thing that was going to feel right. therapeutic for me. It was the last thing that was going to feel therapeutic for me. And every description of Family Constellation just kept on feeling and sounding too much like um, psychodrama. But eventually, I relented when she really begged me. She said, really, trust me, trust me on this one, trust our friendship on this one. So I attended my first workshop, and I was literally blown away by it. And then I... Um, it was either the first workshop or the second workshop. I'm not sure, but very soon afterwards. Um, and sometimes when I tell this story, I say it was the first workshop. And sometimes I say it was the second workshop because I don't really quite remember. This is a long time ago. But what do you remember of those two workshops that really struck you as something different? 
Well, she set up a constellation to my own family. And a very personal story came out between my mother and her mother, uh, which nobody in the workshop was aware of, because I hadn't told the story, because I didn't think it was important. Right. I didn't think it was important. And it really, really grabbed my attention, really grabbed my attention. And I was really emotionally very deeply engaged. Um, and so many questions about my mother were answered. I suddenly saw my mother differently with open eyes and with, and with a more open heart. So that was one thing that really moved me and stirred me. And the other one was the first time I represented, I was asked to come in and represent someone's grandfather. And as I did so, I stood on one leg and it was a very bizarre feeling. I couldn't put my leg down. And then the client said to the facilitator, who was my friend, ah, my grandfather lost his leg in the First World War. Oh, wow. So that also grabbed my attention. So I realized, realized that there was something going on within family constellation work that wasn't present in what I saw with, with psychodrama. And because it was much quieter in nature in the way that we were working, um, to my traumatized self, it was a much more pleasing environment to be in. So then I attended workshop after workshop after workshop after workshop after workshop nearly every weekend for a couple of years. Um, and then I started to learn from some other individuals and I went to the United States and um, I learned from two or three different facilitators in the US as well. And then when um, I was in South Africa, when, when senior German facilitators would come and, and give a workshop, I would attend their workshops too. So I really um, enjoyed the buffet of family constellation work with the different flavors and nuances of the work. And then after um, a training that I attended with Bert Hellinger in, now I can't remember whether it was 2000 or 2001, I'm sorry, but it was one of the two years. And then I started um, facilitating in earnest. I'd done some mini workshops beforehand, just try, because I I was already giving meditation workshops, etc. And then I started trying some mini constellations. So then in 2001, I started in earnest facilitating. So I've been facilitating for um, 23 years. Do you, do you recall as a beginner facilitator myself, do you recall that first workshop that you facilitated and how that felt like? The very first workshop I facilitated was in Norway. And that was in, uh, that was definitely in 2000. I know that for, for, for a fact, that was definitely in 2000. Um, I was really looking back at it unskilled still very ignorant um, not many of my therapeutic skills had been fully developed etc and yet astonishingly um, somebody who had attended that very first workshop that i gave more than 23 years ago attended a workshop of mine last year nice and I was really stunned that anybody that attended that first workshop would be interested enough to work with me again. But, you know, when we look at things from our older self, we're very critical often sure. of the work we did before, you know. And occasionally now somebody will come to me with a book that I've written 17 years ago and ask me about a particular quote. A, I don't remember saying it. <laughs> yeah, I still agree with it. You know, right. Things move on. Things move That's on. That's right. Change. Yeah. That's right. And so and each book that I've written is really a time capsule. Mm. Yeah. So it's a whole era within Shavasti's life. Yes. 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 And I think the beauty of family constellation work is that, of course, there's a lot of it that depends on the facilitator's ability to hold the container in the space mm. so that the field can do what it does for mm. the client. Mm. But at the same time, a lot of it does not depend on the facilitator, mm -hmm. on the field itself and whatever comes up, right? So I think the just reflecting back to my journey on this realm of constellations, which is pretty recent, it's, the, it's being okay in your heart with the unknowable, the mm -hmm. unknown, complete mystery that you're going to step into every time you facilitate. You have mm -hmm. absolutely no idea what's going to unfold and you have to be okay with that. Yes, absolutely. So in part of the training that I do, I, I do training both online 
and um, I do three-day three day training workshops called The Language of the Soul. And the first thing I do is work with the unknown to guide students through having their body be comfortable with absolutely not knowing. Because a lot of our upbringing and our training and our education is all around knowing something and remembering something. And for the most part, and it's very different when you do a PhD or something like that. But for the most part, school exams is about which kid can remember the most. Right. Which kid can memorize it's the most. Yeah. It's, it's really about recall. And so we're tested on what we know, on what we know, not our ability to do, but what we actually know. As I say, that changes when we get to PhD level because you have to... Um, um, you have to be creative and, and produce some of your own material, etc., rather than just memorizing everything that you've learned. Because otherwise, there's really no point in doing a PhD, is there? Right, yeah. right. So I, I actually experienced that uh, approach with you in mm. Bali when the first day that you were up for teaching the group of 40 participants from all over the world, which was mm. a beautiful experience, you had us sit with the question or with the statement, I just don't know. Mm -hmm. And that felt incredibly powerful on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. Just mentally, I just don't know. Really sinking into that question with every mm -hmm. level of your cellular body, you know. So I've, I had the, that, that experience from you, which was very, very rewarding. It's how I start a lot of my work. It's, it's a sentence that I say to myself a lot, and, and I really tune into the parts of my body that are not comfortable with that, that go tense with that, that worry with that. Um, and so if we are to be an open vessel for that which is greater than ourselves, then we have to be comfortable with the not knowing. Because a lot of the work that we do, a lot of the healing work that we do is something that moves through us. It's not something that we do. So it's something that moves through us. And so we really need to be able to surrender to a space that allows grace to be present and grace to make its presence felt. And that can only happen when we get out of the way we cannot summon grace we cannot command grace we cannot channel grace is all we can do is get out of the way and allow grace to do its work shavasti what is the definition of grace benevolence love although i'm very hesitant to use that word because there's been so much attached to the word love right so i prefer um Benevolence, 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 yeah. Hmm. So it's just this otherworldly benevolence that just flows through, allowing that to flow yeah. through. Well, it's something that I spoke about um, in my book and my audio book. Um, so I have an audio book called Teachings from an Awakened Heart mm -hmm. and, um, and have another book called Embracing the Power of Truth. And in both books, I talk about my near-death experience. And um, so I had a motorcycle accident in Thailand. Oh, wow. And in the process of healing my leg, um, I was in hospital and I was on a gurney in the emergency room. And um, I, I found myself just going out of my body. And I had an encounter. It took me a lot of courage to be able to say publicly or even to another human being, that was the day that I met God. How long but ago was that? 2013. Wow. Okay. 2000, 2013. So 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, 2013. A little bit more than 10 years because it was February 2013. And just to make that claim, the day that I met God, but I'm not a huge fan of the word God either, because God conjures up so many different images. And most for most people, the word God still conjures up this idea of an individual entity that is ruling the universe and staring down 
and very curious about what we're all doing with our genitals. That's what we're being taught by religion. So, or what food we're eating, or what holy days or Sabbaths we're, we're keeping. And even as a child... Like a, lot, a, a lot of dogmas come up dogma. when we say the word God. Yeah. Even as a child, I, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't marry up these 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 two different gods in my mind. So on the one hand, there was this God that created absolute beauty and exquisiteness. But there was this angry, jealous God that wanted to punish everybody. And right. I'm thinking, are these the same person? How can such beauty and exquisiteness exist in the heart of that being and also this jealousy, hatred, need to punish psychopathic behavior um and i thought wow they, they 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 just don't these two opposite ideas of who and what god is just just does not measure up for me right and so during my near-death experience um i was hmm I often struggle with words, and although I um, have this audio presentation on it, but every time I go into the memory of it, it, it seems that the English language or any language is rather impotent when it comes to giving an accurate description. But I was bathed in and became part of this vast, alive, gently pulsating awareness that was the essence of love itself and so there was just this presence a presence that was within me and every cell of my being around me that i was part of that i was at one with but also separate to i could observe it and be it observing me at the same time and so when I came back from that experience, I began to describe that God as the benevolence, because that's mm. all I thought. That's all I experienced was benevolence. And so I had the privilege of seeing many, many things during this near-death experience. And one of them was looking at humanity, looking at all of the evil, all of the cruelty, all of the wars, all of the corruption, all of the hatred, then also looking at all of the beauty, the art, the kindness, the charity, the compassion, um, the, the love that connects human beings and all of it together. And the thing that I noticed was that the benevolence, the level of benevolence did not waver, not even by a nanometer. It was just constant. It was just mm. constant. No matter what I was looking at, it was just looking at everything with absolute benevolence. And what I came away with from that experience, I was shown many, many different things, and, and I could take up more than an hour talking about all the different things that I saw. But what I experienced was that every grain of sand and every blade of grass was held as precious, was held as absolutely precious. And so the fabric of the universe is love and benevolence itself. And so we can get very caught up in, in things that seem very real and that are very real. And there's a war going on in Ukraine at the moment. There's real suffering taking place. Mm -hmm. There are natural disasters and diseases that happen on the planet, and these are very real. And so um, I, I'm, not, I'm not of the mind to say to people, well, the only reality that's real is the spiritual reality, therefore completely detach yourself right. from this reality, because wars are real, diseases are real, suffering is real. And therefore, for me, our main purpose for being here is learning compassion. And so one of my deep longings in this lifetime, one of my deep longings is to learn every aspect of love. 
really to learn every aspect of love. And so whilst there's a deep part of me that's had this experience of this other reality where there is only benevolence, that doesn't cause me to be detached from suffering. It causes me to ask even further, how can I help to alleviate the suffering? What is my contribution right. to the planet? Right. So, yeah, and I think a, a lot of, and I think a lot of the movement that people do towards religiosity or spirituality is a type of escape. Mm -hmm. I need refuge. I need to run away from my traumatic, wounded uh, life experience, and so this is an attempt to escape my body. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not what the intention of religiosity is, but depending on how you pursue it and how you approach it, it might actually cause a more detachment from your body itself right and well i think i think religion gives people a safe structure that gives them a safer structure with meaning because without religion then there there is a, a lack of meaning for some people sure and so they need to be given a set of rules to follow and then the, if you obey all these rules it leads to this guaranteed end destination um, whereas spirituality can lead some people to say, well, the other world is better than this world. And so I'm going to live with one foot in the other world constantly and, right. be, and be detached and go around telling everybody, oh, this world is an illusion. This world is an illusion. Of course, um, a physicist might actually tell us that this world is uh, an illusion as well. But meanwhile, chopping wood and carrying water going to the bathroom in the morning. These are all real things that we have to do. We still have to engage with this world. And so the choice is around how do we engage with the world? Do we engage with the world from a defended heart or an undefended heart? Do right. we contribute kindness that is without mask, without defenses? So I'm talking about authentic. I'm not talking about walking around with a love mask where our head is constantly tilted and we're smiling at people right. in a very inauthentic way. I'm talking about engaging people with authentic authenticity got it do you do you i would love if you could speak a little bit about your experience in china and first of all what prompted you to go there to learn tai chi and qigong and what were some of the takeaways of that year-long experience okay well one of the things that took me to china is the armed robbery that i experienced in 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 africa so i needed to really heal myself from trauma. I was extremely traumatized. Um, and um, there had been other events that year. That was the culmination of that year. And um, a couple of friends had died. And um, there had been a couple of other attempted robberies as well. My dogs had been poisoned and oh, wow. killed. And so I'd experienced a lot of loss in 2007. And so um, I had already, already had experience with Tai Chi and I was very interested in it. And I bought into this image of that sort of Eastern calm mind that that was going to, to heal me. And it did. And I went off to China and, and um, I learned Tai Chi and I learned it very well. And, and I had uh, two very, very good teachers, which I learned some very valuable things from. One of the things that I learned when I got to China, which was quite a shock to me, I learned how Christian my thinking still was. Mm. So I had been quote unquote spiritual for, um, you know, quite a long time, uh, nearly two decades. And so I thought I was completely divested of Christian thinking and that I was totally a free thinker and not Western in, in, in my thinking at all. I was a universalist, etc. But when you get emerged in a culture that's completely foreign and completely different to your own, then you get to view your own culture by comparison. So that was the first thing that I learned. Um, so that was number one. It was like, okay, there's still stuff here. There's still conditioned thinking that I need to 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 work with. Um, yeah, and um, I, one of the first things that 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 um, that I noticed in China that sometimes the Chinese would leave offerings of money to their ancestors to spend in the other world. I'm thinking, oh my god, 
money isn't spiritual, money is bad. Mm. <laughs> so I had to cross that bridge as well. And um, so that was part of my conditioning. But I went to another teacher and uh, it was a she, which was very unusual in China to have a Tai Chi master who was a female. And I went to her school because I had problems with the first school and I was looking for another teacher. And um, I was pretty confident in my Tai Chi at that stage. And so she she asked me to, to run through the 24 movements of Yang Tai Chi. And so I did my little performance and I could see by looking at her face that she was underwhelmed, completely unimpressed. I was crushed. My ego was dented and hurt. And so she said that she uh, wasn't ready to take me into the class, but that I could come and work one-on-one -on -one with her for a short while before joining the class. So she taught me the first movement of Tai Chi Yang 24, which I already knew the first this movement. Right yes, that, that movement there. And I thought to myself, why is she teaching me the first movement? Clearly, I know the first movement. Anyway, she wanted me to do that. And she had me practice the first movement of Tai Chi for five hours a day, six days a week for two weeks, just that first movement. Very, very clever woman. Because that really calmed down my system. And that really taught me the value of taking time with something. In the Western world, we're all in such a rush. You know, um, I spent five years in the healing school. There are some people that do a weekend workshop in Reiki and they set up healing practice the following Monday morning. So everything's got to be learned in a weekend now. Everything's got to be learned quickly now. Mm -hmm. So we go out and we buy, everything has been merchandised. It's become a product. Mm -hmm. And so when I travel around the world, I often have people say, can I have a certificate to say that I've attended your workshop? I say, well, what do you intend to do with a certificate? Right. And what do you think the certificate's telling you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very resistant to that. And so this really taught me that lesson to slow down and take time with things. And so I've developed my language of the soul um, training where we really slow down and take time with various healing statements. And it's very slow. Which are two of the book titles that you have, right? I believe. No, one is a book title called The Language of the Soul. Language of the Soul, okay. Yeah, which was written about 16 years ago, something like that. And again, if I were to rewrite that book, I would rewrite it quite differently. Got it. But that That's set up the foundation of the work that you offer as far as training and constellations, at least the approach, right? Yes, the approach, yes, yeah, the approach. And then also too, there was my experience at the Barbara Brennan School of Healing and then also walking the shaman's path with Patricia White Buffalo. So I basically spent five years at healing school. And so, um, and that often involved repeating the same thing over and over and over again until we perfected the art of something. I find a lot of students are too much in a rush to gobble up the next thing, gobble up the next thing, and gobble up the next thing, instead of really embodying what they've just learned and sitting with it and moving with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the art of something, the ritualization of something, when you do it with consciousness and awareness and slowing down, that's how you truly embody it, how you, mm -hmm. make, you, how you make your cells truly internalize that, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And so you have been doing workshops all over the world, Shavasi. And one of the things that I admire is the ability of a facilitator such as yourself to be able to adapt mm -hmm. as you enter a new country, a new culture, a new environment. Mm -hmm. And family constellation work is extremely universal and sort of open-ended in the sense that you don't need to learn something before you need to study a book or you need there's no prerequisite for you to sit step in as a facilitator or to participate or to be a client and yet the world is a very diverse place and so i'm curious if you could speak a little bit about uh, uh, speak a little bit to that how do you uh adapt and shift gears in order to be more sensitive to the local culture of the place you're going to 
study reading documentaries. That's really the, the, so before I started working in Israel, I started searching through the BBC archives for every documentary I could see about Israel to understand um, more of its history, its culture and its traditions. And so before going to any country, I Google, Google is my friend. And so I find out about historical events. So I know what kind of questions to ask. And so um, if there have been events in a certain country that I was unaware of beforehand, then when somebody's when somebody's sitting in the, in the chair next to me, I can ask them the question, were your parents or grandparents affected by this event and then name that event and know that it's present and there? Because the client doesn't necessarily know to talk about those things. Because they don't think it's important to mention. They don't think, it, they don't think it's important. And so I do my research before I go to any particular country. And my policy is to listen and to ask questions and not to pass any comment. I have opinions about all sorts of things, but mostly I keep them to myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because my opinions are not useful. And if you're a guest in somebody else's country, well, why be rude and offend people? You know, why be rude and offend people? It's better just guess, to listen and absorb. And I think it's part of this mantra of living from an undefended heart. Undefended to me also conjures up the image of receptive, mm -hmm. open, yes, yes, vulnerable. Receptive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, in your YouTube channel, which I'm going to put in the description of this video for everybody to check out, there's uh, several video interviews where you talk at length and in depth about the law of attraction, the law of resonance forgiving uh you know between forgiveness between children and parents between uh the working of, on your inner child so i wonder if we can maybe end today to today's episode with going a little bit into this law of resonance which is another word for the law of attraction and the way you describe that makes a lot of sense but just wonder if we could have our viewers be curious about that for me, the, the, the law of resonance is a deepening of the understanding of the law of attraction. A lot of people believe, so you have to, to really understand a little bit about the chakra system. Okay. Um, a lot of people believe that through just with positive thinking alone that they can create the things that they want. Mm -hmm. Just with po positive thinking. It's very, very easy. It's very, very easy um, to create positive thinking. However, um, we are multidimensional beings and we're beings with multi-aspects. And so I know through my own healing work is that my heart can be saying one thing and my solar plexus can be saying something else altogether. So one cancels out the other. It's very easy to conjure up this image in our third eye because that's our projector onto the world to create this image of the perfect relationship, etc. But if your second chakra is saying, well, every time that I've bonded and attached to somebody, I get hurt. Hmm. How successful are we going to be to, to manifest that relationship? And so I talk about the, the law of resonance in terms of, um, it's not just about creating wonderful images. It's not just a, about creating positive thoughts. So a lot of people approach this mentally and that becomes their escape out of their world of feelings. Mm. How we feel about something and what other parts of us are saying. And so there is parts work. There is a therapy that's called parts work. I think it's called internal family systems, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, where we work with different parts. And, and, and I look at that as, as being different aspects of different chakras. And so it's when we've aligned everything and the energy regarding a certain thing that we're wanting to create or wanting to manifest, when that energy can move freely through the shashumna, through the central power channel, up through all of the chakras, unblemished by the, the solar plexus freaking out or the second chakra freaking out about something. And once we can become a central clear channel, then that is when it will manifest in our lives or manifest and remain more permanent. Of course, nothing is permanent. We're all eventually going to die. So everything is temporary that we have. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and also what I've wanted to manifest 
has changed with my own personal development and maturity. And so when I first learned about manifesting, and I, and I happen to be a fairly good manifester, um, when I first learned about manifesting or bringing things into my life that I want, I was more focused on fame and money and houses and cars and stuff like that. Um, that stuff doesn't really interest me now. It's more about um, how do I want to be in the world? How do I want to feel in the world? What is it that's going to feed my soul? And what is going to support me in the work that I want to do? So it's really more about bringing that into my life rather than thinking about a new fancy car. Mm -hmm. I've had a, I've had a new fancy car. I've, I've had that and done all that's right. that. You've been, been there, done that. I think a, a very trivial example, but might might help to describe it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is when people play the lottery in the hopes of winning, and then they right. do win. And mm -hmm. then half the time, five years later, they're broke. Absolutely. And that happens because their energy field literally cannot hold that amount of wealth. They don't have the inner development in order to be able to, to hold that. And when I say that, I can already hear a critical voice saying, oh, so then you're saying that billionaires have got more in their development than others? No, that's not what I'm saying. But if you come from poverty, it's just like the cultural adjustment you need to make when you go from one country to another. You need to make an, an, an inner adjustment. Um, and so when people do win lotteries, etc., they often feel guilty that they have so much money and others don't have as much. They feel pressure from their families to give money away or their ego gets involved and they just want to splash money around and, and show how wonderful they are. And I think it takes some inner work to be able to hold extra wealth. And part of extra wealth is also um, being benevolent. Right. Not in a healthy way, not in a, a winning and buying friendships way. Exactly. Yeah, and also has to do with our loyalties to our ancestors and our Correct. family system. Correct. Our Correct. family system yeah. comes from scarcity and poverty. How dare we be yes. wealthier and more prosperous than they are? That's indeed. An indeed. unconscious loyalty, right? Yes, indeed. Beautiful. Well, there's so many more things we could talk about, but I want to honor our time here. And we're coming to the end of this conversation around the fire on spirit reflections. And I'd like to invite you, Shavasti, to close this conversation by uh, bringing us into an experiential moment of a visualization, a meditation, or anything that your heart uh, calls you to okay. uh, close uh, in this. And if you'd like to speak a few words about what it is that we're going to experience, feel free. Well, I would just invite you to just to close your eyes for a moment and breathe down into the pelvis. Sitting in the pelvis is very important. And perhaps begin to experience how it's the energy that comes up from the pelvis that supports the heart. And that in order for us to live from a more undefended heart, that we need to be grounded. We need to be of the earth and part of the earth and part of the human and planetary community. Because we do live in a broader community that includes animals and trees, insects, rocks, everything around us is part of the community of life and awareness and consciousness. So continue to breathe down into the pelvic floor. And then bring your awareness to the center of your chest, your heart. And just ask yourself, what is it that I truly long for? Is it for connection? Is it for communion? Is it to live more freely from an undefended heart in a very authentic way? When we tap into our longing on a daily basis, that brings us much closer to living as a more complete being. Now, many of us avoid this feeling of longing because we feel the absence of what it is that we long for, and therefore we numb ourselves with cigarettes, with food, pornography, alcohol, drugs. Mm -hmm. And so what we're 
longing for is a deeper connection to life and others. And so just allow that to be present for a moment. And just remind yourself that there are others in community around the world who are here to assist us. And that by coming together in community, we can deepen this experience of connection and of living from an undefended heart. So that's my offering today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shavasti. A wonderful conversation. All the information about Shavasti's work, his website, and his books is in the description of this video. We invite you to like and subscribe to Spare Reflections on YouTube, and please give us your comments and feedbacks. What kind of guests and topics would you like us to have you around the fire? And I hope to see you, Shavasti, soon uh, in person in a, the same continent in the workshop and to continue this journey together. Okay, thank you very much, Fred. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye-bye.